0: So now for today's program. We're all familiar with the dramatic contributions of Thomas Jefferson to American history. I dare say this room wouldn't be this full if we were not. (laughs) So what can you say about Jefferson? Author of the Declaration of Independence, wartime governor of Virginia, emissary to France, author of Virginia's Statute for Religious Freedom, secretary of state, president, architect, farmer, and indefatigable letter writer. All these contributions are familiar, but what isn't so well known to most people are his years in retirement. Jefferson returned to Monticello in 1809 at the end of his second presidential term, and he died there 17 years later. In his new book, Alan Pell Crawford reveals the private Jefferson at home, coping with debt and illness, mediating family quarrels, and navigating public disputes but still a towering figure in the early republic. Mr. Crawford's previous book on a Virginia subject was Unwise Passions, a true story of a remarkable woman and the first great scandal of 18th century America. Many of you remember that book, I'm sure, and also Mr. Crawford's talk here in 2001 on the subject Growing Up in Jefferson's Shadow, The Unwise Passions of the Founders' Children. So please welcome back Alan Pell Crawford, who will speak to us about his new book, and I'll put in a shameless merchandising plug, it's for sale at the shop, his new book, Twilight at Monticello, The Final Years of Thomas Jefferson. Alan?
1: Thank you, uh, Paul. I also want to thank um, Nelson Lankford, who helped set this up and uh, Charlie Bryan for his I'm not sure is here today but for his uh, 20 remarkable years of service to the Virginia Historical Society you know it is hard to believe that it's been since 2001 that I spoke here last Uh, this building this this uh, room as I understand it didn't even exist at that time Um, but I can say looking out here that uh that in, in that amount of time, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> you look great. Um, you know, in my writing and my approach to narrative history, uh, I, I tend to think in, in visual images and, uh, that are uh, rather novelistic or even cinematic. It helps sort of organize my thoughts, and it hooks me into... Um, uh, situations that that make the past very vivid come alive for me, and, and I think for readers, I'm going to mention three of those uh, images today. Uh, the third of which I hope you can sort of get fixed in your mind as it as it got fixed in mine, uh, and uh, led to some of the things I want to say today about Jefferson and, and some of his little some of his thinking. Uh, all the all three of these appear in, in Unwise Passions. Uh, one of them, the second, actually led to the writing of, it, it, of Twilight at Monticello. The uh, f- the first um, uh, was at the um, sensational court hearing in Cumberland County in 1793, at which Nancy Randolph, born at Tuckahoe, uh, the had, uh, the sister-in-law of of Richard Randolph of Bizarre Plantation, at which these two young people, not yet uh, 20, were accused of uh, her having given birth to his child and the two of them killing it. Now, at this court case, as some of you know, the Randolphs hired to defend them a a rather young John Marshall and a rather old Patrick Henry. Martha Jefferson Randolph, Thomas Jefferson's daughter, who had married Nancy Randolph's brother, Thomas Mann Randolph, Jr. of Tuckahoe, testified at this hearing, as did John Randolph, again, not yet, 20, who, was, uh, who would become known into history as Randolph of Roanoke, a cousin of Jefferson's. Now, at this hearing, uh, young John Randolph testified that he knew Nancy Randolph could never have been pregnant during this period because at a bizarre plantation about 70 miles uh, southwest of here. They frequently lounged on the beds together, and he knew that she never wore stays. This was fascinating to me because it was such an intimate glimpse of these young people living without adult supervision, as I said, on a plantation 60, 70 miles from here, obviously with too much time on their hands. Now. <laughs> yeah. In 1799, Nancy Randolph, her her, uh, opportunities to marry a Virginia gentleman by this point totally ruined, was allowed to visit her cousins and her brother at Monticello. It was there she wrote to to St. George Tucker of Williamsburg that she found the house in a terrible state of dilapidation. Then this got got me thinking. I thought, well, obviously Monticello as we know it today didn't look like It does now in 1799, and the more I delved into it, it seemed like it never did. Um, And so I got very interested in writing about what life at at Monticello was really like, which which resulted in the book Twilight at Monticello. Now, the third image, and the one I'd kind of like you to sort of uh, get, I hope it gets fixed in your mind the way it did in mine, it was back in on April, April 1, 1796, Benjamin Latrobe, who was fresh out of, fresh from England, uh, later to become the architect of the U.S. Capitol. Latrobe had sailed, had arrived from England. He had sailed out of Norfolk, bound for Hampton, and was there. He hoped to catch a mail coach to Richmond, which he did, and then he went on to, uh, Tuckahoe, and later to Bazaar Plantation at the time of Richard Randolph's death, and left a terrific diary, invaluable resource uh, about his travels in Virginia. But he said uh, sailing on the Elizabeth River when he first arrived that, that there were wagon low, wagons on the on the uh, riverbank and he inquired about this and he was told that that thousands of runaway slaves had gathered there during the American Revolution 15 years before because they had been promised their freedom if they would run away from the plantations uh, they would be sent to England to be free men. And um, these wagons, uh, Latrobe wrote, were, and I quote, filled with the bones of men, women, and children, stripped of their flesh by the vultures and hawks which abound here and covered the sand for a more, most considerable length. Fascinating image, a very grim one, that, uh, that only within the last couple of weeks... That I looked uh, into a little more of that story, which I'd like to, which I will get to in a moment. Um, Now, move forward to 1814. Jefferson has now been retired from the presidency for about five years. He's living with his daughter, Martha Randolph, with her children at Monticello. He's devoting himself to these many uh, projects he wanted to devote his, his later years to artistic, architectural, educational, historical his life of the mind that Jefferson treasured. He's also falling deeper and deeper in debt. The country once again is at war with Great Britain, and in just two weeks, British soldiers would torch the U.S. Capitol, uh, burning the books that the Congress had come to rely on and creating the circumstances in which Jefferson would be able to sell his own collection to the government and establish the Library of Congress. All right, in August of 1814... Jefferson receives a letter from a young Albemarle neighbor named Edward Coles. Coles had been private secretary to James Madison in the White House, called the executive mansion at that time. Uh, He had become convinced that slavery was evil, that it needed to be abolished, but that he faced the personal uh, dilemma of having just inherited a plantation and slaves. Now... He, he, he yeah. genuinely uh, struggled with this problem because he knew that if he simply uh, freed his slaves, they would have to live, leave Virginia within a year under law and uh, would do so without any kind of resources at all. He could sell them to another slaveholder, but by, almost by definition, any slaveholder that would buy him from, from him would not have the scruples uh, Coles himself did about their treatment, and he thought this was not a, a good option. Uh, Finally, he thought, well, in the worst possible case, I'll leave Virginia, but I hope that doesn't happen because I think that the time has come in which Virginia can abolish slavery. And it was with that in mind that he wrote this very passionate letter to Jefferson saying, you know, I've admired you and known you for your whole life. I know that you've written eloquently on the evils of slavery, and now that you are comfortably retired and you have this great moral authority, now's the time to join your efforts To to put your energies to use ending slavery, and what a wonderful uh, capstone this will be to your career. Now Jefferson, on August twenty fifth, eighteen fourteen, replied, and his response it's characteristically thorough and thoughtful, and also more revealing than Jefferson probably intended it to be. Coles was approaching Jefferson. In, in very real-world problem of how does a real-life slaveholder handle real the problem of owning real slaves. And Jefferson's response was uh, philosophical. It was political. It drew, drew on sociology and history. And it was also thoroughly theoretical. Jefferson said, yes, yeah, slavery is wrong. He'd made no secret of his views of this through the years. He said, even... He said, the hour of, the, of emancipation is advancing on the march of time, whether by the generous energy of our own minds or by bloody race war. However, he had concluded that, as he put it, nothing can be hoped from the present generation, meaning his own. He's 71 years old at this time. He says he's too old, too tired. He's done all he can. He has no more energy left for such an undertaking. He wishes Cole's well in it and concludes this enterprise is for the young. Now, however much Jefferson's reply must have disappointed Coles and surely disappoints us today, the reasoning is more subtle than might first appear, and the answer is, in a sense, more disingenuous than we'd like to hope. Uh, At 71, Jefferson might have been too old for a lot of projects. Uh, He was certainly not too old to get on his horse and ride down the mountain virtually every day except when the weather was extreme, uh, to work on uh, the grounds at the what would become the, the University of Virginia, uh, picked the curriculum, that helped select the professors, designed the building, did all these wonderful things that I'm grateful that he did, but he was also at 71 still a man with a great deal of energy and enterprise. At any rate, uh, uh, Jefferson... Uh, 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 five days after responding, Nicole's received a letter from another Virginian friend who was advising, who was asking Jefferson's advice on how, on the education of the man's son. And Jefferson referred him to Scottish and British Enlightenment thinkers who uh, stressed that man possesses a mor- what he called a moral, what they called a moral sense. It's like the sense of sight in some ways. And Jefferson believed that there it, it was more profit in studying, the bio, studying biology than, on a matter like this than consulting theologians. Jefferson and, these, and the Enlightenment thinkers on the subject believe that man is a social animal and that through living in community, the, this moral sense is refined. And uh, whether an act is uh, ethical or not, it is uh, a function of its utility to the group more so than to the individual. Uh, It's a truism that Jefferson believed in progress, in human progress, and in a sense human uh, perfectibility, which he did. However, this was not some simple-minded belief that this was inevitable. Nor, and this is significant in Jefferson's views on slavery, did he believe that this moral refinement, this uh, ethical development could be rushed. Mankind, Jefferson believed, progressed not through acts of heroic individuals setting some example of moral excellence that others might... uh, imitate, as Coles and others believe, but through the shared experience of a group as it inches its way toward a more ethical society. This advancement in moral refinement, Jefferson believed, takes place by degrees over time and in response to very specific historical circumstances. And the specific historical circumstance of the settlers along the Atlantic coast was the break with Great Britain the Declaration of Independence, and the formation of a self-governing republic. One, one or two things je- people know about Jefferson. They know he wrote the Declaration of Independence. They also know he had a relationship with Sally Hemings. <laughs> Beyond that, it's wide open. But uh, Jefferson, uh, in discussing the Declaration of Independence, always insisted, and there was no false modesty in this, that this was not some creative work by an individual genius. He was merely distilling the common wisdom of Americans at this time. And, he, and he's telling the truth there. It, the, this achievement marks the significant moment in human progress, and through it, Jefferson believed, by arriving at this understanding the need to form a new uh, government, these settlers had reached a new level of moral development. But Jefferson believed the settlers who had made this revolution were white. And this refining experience, because it was an experience, could not be artificially transplanted into people who, through no fault of their own, were not participants in it. Now, Jefferson always viewed slavery as a crime not against individual slaves, but against an entire people. It was a national uh, crime, and... For Jefferson, the question was never, are uh, African-Americans human? The question for Jefferson was whether African-Americans could ever become Americans. He said, these these aren't Americans, never will be. They were dragged here against their will from Africa by English slave traders who lacked the moral refinement that Jefferson and his contemporaries had, Um, And as long as that was the case, they would remain a captive nation within our borders. Whatever country a black man might choose to call his own, Jefferson wrote in Notes on the State of Virginia, it must be any other than the one in which he is born to live and labor for another. And just as American whites had created their own nation along the Atlantic coast, Jefferson believed that African blacks in bondage in this country would have to forge their own civilization elsewhere through unique historical experiences of their own. Only as a free and independent people, he said, would they develop these virtuous habits of mind that render people capable of self-government. Now, the solution to this for Jefferson was, as it was for a lot of thinkers of the day, was expatriation. Uh, Slaves would have to be colonized somewhere else, perhaps in the American Southwest, but more likely in the West Indies or in Africa. And there they would form their own civilization. Now, others um, supported these efforts, in part just to get black people out of, out of this country. Jefferson, sharing the prejudices of his day, wished that as well, but he also did so, to, uh, in, in all fairness, in the belief that this was an important and necessary uh, step for their own uh, development as a people. The way that Jefferson believed slavery was to be abolished was for Virginians, by their own volition, to end it themselves. This would occur, he believed, when as a group they came to see slavery for the crime that it was against humanity. That, uh, and they could not be rushed in their arrival at this conclusion because Jefferson, the, the civil libertarian, believed that opinions cannot be co- coerced. The refinement of the moral sense could not be uh, enforced from without. To do so, for, others, for people other than Virginians or South Carolinians or Georgians, to... Uh, for someone other than, than these different uh, states to, abol- to, to enforce abolition on them would be to violate the Declaration of Independence itself and the entire scheme of American self-government. And these, the principles for which this achievement had been made would not be violated, Jefferson believed, simply because passionate people could be impatient. Truth advances, and error recedes by steps only, Jefferson observed, And to do our fellow man the most good in our power, we must lead where we can, follow where we cannot, and still go with them, watching always the favorable moment for helping them to another step. And so on this basis, Jefferson chose what the historian John Chester Miller has called the unheroic but eminently prudent policy of biding his time, awaiting the ripening of public opinion. Well, 35 years later, The issue of slavery, as invading armies devastated Virginia, was indeed settled. Uh, A later generation, as Jefferson predicted, would settle this matter. Now, I said a, a moment ago that Jefferson believed that the blacks were not Americans in large part because they had not participated in the American Revolution. What Jefferson did not say, however, was that in Virginia, blacks were not allowed to do so. And I'm calling you back to to Latrobe's image of the wagons on the Elizabeth River. Many black Americans did give their all in the war for independence. Many fought heroically, as would be acknowledged by their own commanders. Despite initial opposition from General Washington, 5,000 black men enlisted in the Continental Army. By 1778, at least one out of every 20 men in the Continental Army was black. That's 5% of the fighting force. They served an average of four and a half years compared to three and a half for white soldiers. Now, Virginians enlisted more African Americans than any other state. Two Virginia brigades, nearly 200 strong, fought at Monmouth Courthouse. One free black family from Lancaster County sent at least nine brothers and cousins to the Continental Army. But blacks were prohibited from joining the Virginia state militia. As, were, as they were in many states, but those who did not enlist were conscripted for non-combat duties. 1776 in New York, all able-bodied black men were, uh, it, were conscripted to for help the soldiers fortify the town. In Virginia, when Jefferson was governor, the state bought black men, women, and children to labor for the state in lead mines as wagoners, blacksmiths, carpenters, and in the state-owned ironworks where they forged cannons. Now, none of this is to suggest that the British, who promised slaves their freedom for running off and helping the loyalist cause, performed any more admirably than did the patriots. At British insistence, for example, runaways built the fortifications at Yorktown. Many died in the shelling. In fact, Yorktown's an interesting case because uh, one uh, runaway black named... uh, James, one-way slave named James Armistead, uh, endeared himself to Lafayette. Lafayette persuaded him to volunteer in Corn- first at Benedict Arnold's force and then in Cornwallis's. He uh, endeared himself to Cornwallis to the point that Cornwallis thought he was spying for him. In fact, Armistead remained a, a spy for um, Lafayette and when Cornwallis visited Lafayette after the surrender, he found Armistead in Lafayette's tent chatting amiably with him. Um, now, I said Cornwallis it, it, it conscripted uh, uh, runaways to um, uh, help at Yorktown, but when he could no longer Use or free these, or or feed these slaves, he turned them out. As one soldier said, they might be seen scattered about in every direction with the smallpox for their bounty and starvation and death for their wages. Others, as Latrobe found out, had gathered at the river. Having been denied their freedom here at home, they hoped against hope to find it elsewhere. Now, I've, I've thrown quite a lot at you today, and you've been very patient, and there's an awful lot that you can do with information of this kind. Um, the Washington Post, in its review of Twilight at Monticello, came to the same conclusion that a lot of, I think, less than thoughtful people have, <laughs> who, who, who view the... Um, You view the overall record of Jefferson on race and and come to the conclusion that he was, as is frequently said, a hypocrite. The question that is always raised is this, is how could could a man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, who said that all men were created equal, how could this man have owned slaves? And uh, there's really only one way to answer that question and it is too easy and it's unfair and it doesn't do justice to Jefferson and his time and it doesn't help our understanding to, to conclude as a lot of, uh, of people do that Jefferson well he was just a hypocrite may make the person who, who says that feel better about themselves in some way and superior and, and I find it condescending um, doesn't explain very much it's histo- as, as, as a writer on history, I've never claimed to be a historian, but as a writer on, hi- on history, um, it's not even a, a productive question. It doesn't lead you anywhere. You don't understand more about the man or the period or yourselves or your nation's history by asking the question in that way. But if you reverse it, you come to a very... You, you, it takes on a different form. The question then becomes, how could a man born into a slave-holding society who inherits slaves, who comes by more slaves in his marriage, who is dependent upon slave labor for his economic wherewithal, how could this man have concluded that slavery was wrong, could have gone on record throughout his life in, in, in written documents like Notes on the State of Virginia, Or as a legislator in the House of Burgesses, when he authored, uh, very early in his career, he authored legislation for the gradual emancipation of slaves, uh, which this is, by the way, what led him in part to the conclusion that nothing was to be hoped by his generation. The thing never got out of committee. Um, He stated his opposition, uh, for for a time he was opposed to the uh, extension of slavery into the Northwest Territories, and he made no—he uh, made no secret of his belief that this was evil. So how could a man with this this situation, with it coming for, as he did uh, from a slaveholding society, have come to these conclusions? And in his faltering and incomplete and disappointing way, nevertheless made some efforts to end it. You ask the question in that way, and you can have a substantive conversation about the provenance of ideas, about moral progress, and about the sophisticated thinking of a very serious, serious man, Thomas Jefferson. You ask the question in that way, and for me anyway, my admiration for him increases. Um, I hope yours does as well, Um, and I hope that, that when that subject comes up, that's sort of the way you begin to think of it. One thing I've learned in, in studying Jefferson is that man's thinking is much more subtle than I imagined it to be, and that I think most writers on Jefferson understand. Um, and I can see by the clock that, that, that now comes for me the scary part of this time together. I remember uh, uh, about two years into my research, which was all of about four or five years, Someone asking me, Alan, is there anything about Thomas Jefferson at this point that you don't know? And I got asked that twice in one week by two different people. And I had to laugh because people write entire books on Jefferson and music and Jefferson and wine and Jefferson and architecture and Jefferson and Madison. Endless. I scratched the surface. I know a little bit about a little bit. Um, I know there's probably ten people in this audience who probably teach Jefferson, have studied him their entire lives, and are waiting like those uh, like those people who, like, like the Civil War buffs, who, who read books on the Civil War and then tell the author, you got that belt buckle wrong. Um, so, you know, when you live in a world of real scholars, you, you develop a, an imposter complex. And these, this is the time to bring it on. Um, Uh, I remember Mike Huckabee when he was running for president, maybe he still is, I think he's running for vice president now, when he was running for president he said that, uh, well, if you can't stand the sight of your own blood, you don't get into the battle, Um. so with the time we have left between now and the time I get to sign books, I'll take, I'd be happy to take any questions that you might have uh, with the even in even questions about Sally Hemings, although I can tell looking out at this crowd that this is far more high-minded, <laughs> sophisticated, scholarly a group to ever be interested in any such thing. Um, if, if, if you're not that way, we can talk now or, or even afterwards. So thank you very much.